0: Hey, I'm Ben Gill with Oxenfree Film and Motion. And I'm Christian Harris with Aquas Films. And this is Building the Brand, the Hustle Behind Orlando's Biggest Brands. So in this episode, we interviewed Jim Hobart from Macbeth Studio. This
1: was recorded before the coronavirus, so we do we don't mention anything about that. <laughs> Yeah, so if it seems a little bit not in the time, that's why this was recorded months before. Ironically, he says the word "social distance" some
0: in some context, which is super serendipitous and weird. But this was recorded actually months before. We're just very slow at getting these episodes out, um, and we're just now recording this intro. So, Christian, do you
1: want to introduce Jim and like what you liked about the pod this episode? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Jim was awesome, mainly in the way that he is in me and your industry. Um, He's a Macbeth studios is is mainly a portrait photography studio. Um, But that's not where they stop. They do all kinds of things. I mean, they're doing video, they're doing photography for all different kinds of venues and uh, avenues. He also, throughout the podcast, you'll hear him talking about all of these ideas he has for future projects. And I think my favorite part of the of the podcast, which you guys are all going to hear, is his um, mirror image experiment, which I can't wait for you guys to hear that because I thought that was probably one of the most interesting things we've heard in in our past interviews with Orlando entrepreneurs.
0: Yeah, our first interview was with Sally Kobolinsky of In Bloom Florist. And that's a very different industry than maybe the one we're in. And this one was way closer to our industry so it's kind of addressed it like compare notes and like have at least like a a language that we shared in terms of cameras and lighting
1: and all that yeah i think too it was really awesome to see someone do something that we wanted to do you know like listen to jim tell his story from pretty much when he was our age to where he is now it gives you this kind of like hope and uh, excitement that it's possible for us to, you know, to make these studios successful and long lasting in Orlando.
0: Yeah. So I guess we'll, uh, quit our jabbering and let's jump into the episode. Let's do it. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today, Jim. I guess we'll just jump right into it. Great. It's good to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Um, do you just want to introduce yourself to the listeners that maybe don't know
2: about Macbeth? Sure. Yeah. My name's Jim Hobart and uh, I'm the founder of Macbeth studio. Uh, we do photography and video, um, Our photography business started with aerial photography and we gradually migrated into headshots and architecture and products and various other things. So it's easier to tell people now what we don't do. We don't do weddings, we don't do babies, we don't do engagement and family stuff. So it's all commercial.
1: What, What was the, I guess, what was your impetus to start with photography? I know you did something else before you started with photography.
2: I've been taking pictures since I was 14 years old. Um, I borrowed my dad's camera when I was in middle school and I took it to a track meet and I got one decent photo out of a roll of 36. And it just just stuck with me, you know. Once you get one great photo, you're like, oh, I can do this. And then, you know, I didn't get another one for like two years, but that's okay. Um, So I've been a hobbyist photographer pretty much all my adult life. Uh, Owned an advertising agency from 94 to 2004 called Knight and they're still in business, and I'm still good friends with them. In fact, they're a client of ours. Um, great folks over there. And uh, once I sold the ad agency, I had to figure out what to do next. And I'd always taken pictures as a part-time thing or a fun thing. And I finally thought, you know what? Here's a chance. I've got a little bit of money, got a little bit of time. I wasn't under pressure to, you know, make the rent right, right away. And so I was able to sort of, take those couple of years to build that business. And um, so I sort of gradually moved into it and, and I was teaching at UCF at the same time. I was teaching advertising and uh, finally I got to a point where there was so much photography business that I didn't have time to teach anymore. So I just phased that out. So that's when it became full-time about.
0: So that was your moment was just like, you had a, like a gap in your life Yeah, you had a chance to maybe go after your dream maybe or? Yeah,
2: it's a rare opportunity and I count myself very lucky that I had had some money and some time and didn't have to be anywhere for a while. And it's, you know, that's just dumb luck that it just all happened like that. And you know, it's it's a weird moment when you can, when you think you've got a couple of years of runway and the ability to say, what would I do if I didn't have to do something for a living for a little while, what would I do and I didn't know if it was gonna be just for a while and then I'd go get a job or what. But um, as I said, I was teaching at UCF at the same time. So I was sort of dabbling in two different areas. And um, that was a lot of fun as well. So
1: from the point where you took that first picture when you were 14 at that track meet yeah. to when you got to the point where you had that gap and you were able to make it a, try and make it a career, yeah. was it always something you were thinking about? Was it, was it like, I have to do this at some point? Or was it like, when the opportunity arose it was like then you felt like you could do it or
2: um that's a great question uh you know i had throughout my years i had second shot for wedding photographers and i had um taken on little projects uh, on weekends um i'd never done any real studio work but i was always around photography in one form or another in fact when we had the ad agency I would often go and art direct on the photo shoots, and I would sort of ask a million questions to the photographers about their gear and their lighting and their setup and their lenses and stuff. So I was always sort of in that world. I just wasn't getting paid to be in that world. I was kind of a hobbyist, weekend warrior type. Um, and I don't know that I ever... I don't know that I really thought about doing it professionally Until I got to the point at the agency where I was sort of no longer loving that world anymore and began to think well What would be the next logical step? And I remembered how much fun I'd had on photo shoots as the client And I thought it might be fun to be the guy on the other side being the vendor for the
0: client And how old were you when you had this moment?
2: Uh, That would have been 2006 Well, I sold the business in 2004. So that was that little window there. So how old was I, 40? 40? Wow. 66 to 2006. Yeah, I think so. So
0: making like a big pivot at that point in your life is kind of like yeah. a scary, maybe exciting thing to do.
2: What were maybe some of your
0: doubts or fears
2: about going all in into photography? Pivot, when I graduated from college, I worked for two different advertising agencies and both of them for about 18 months. So it wasn't like I had a huge career. And then my buddy Mike Hin and I started Night in 1994 so three years after graduating college we started our own company so I've really very had very little experience being an employee you know sort of since since then 25 years ago I started my own company and I've never really had a boss since then unless you count the folks at UCF but I was a part-timer so they didn't really have much you know, <laughs> control. You're still on your own, yeah. <laughs> yeah, as an adjunct, you get to kind of have do your own thing. So, you know, I'm sort of looking at what's next after this. I'm I'm kind of like, you said it. it you made it sound as if it was a big pivot at that moment, but to me, it's all sort of blends together. You know, naturally, it kind of happened. Yeah, people talk about you know work life balance and you know leave the job and go home. And I, to me, it's all one big. There's no mm. difference. You guys probably recognize that sort of. There's no real difference. Life, life is life. Whether and work and play don't really separate. They're blended together.
1: Ever since you graduated college, you never had a boss. Was that something as a young, when you were younger, like before college? Did you feel like you had this entrepreneurial spirit, or was it just something that kind of happened?
2: Growing up, my dad. Um, when I was very, very young, um, I was born in the U.K. and we left when I was six. My dad was an employee in England, so. I guess my earliest memories are of him getting up and going to work. But when we moved to Canada, when I was six years old, he started his own business as a a, a cartoonist, freelance, um, gag cartoonist. And for the rest of his life, he worked from home. And my mom was a seamstress, and she would do alterations, and so she worked from home. So I grew up in a household full of... People doing their own thing, making their own decisions, not reporting to anyone. And so that's kind of all I ever knew. Like I said, I worked for two different ad agencies after college, you know, applied and got a job and went to work and it was okay. But I think I always had that entrepreneurial thing, you know, even in high school, I would do sign painting on my own, get my own jobs, you know, and photography gigs for people. And so, yeah, all my life I've kind of created my own Mm -hmm business you know some, some more and some less successful but um, yeah. yeah and and as we talked about before I've got two or three other little projects going on I can't I seem to have way more ideas than there are than there is time and I would if I had a few more hours in the day I'd probably have a few more businesses but <laughs> so, I just can't seem to stop you yeah. know
0: well it sounds like it was a pretty natural transition to start doing photography but like at that stage of your life there were people around you that were like what you're gonna do do this, or was it like they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, you're gonna do
2: that." Well, people thought I was an idiot for selling a successful advertising agency with thirty-five employees and just sort of walking away from it all. But I think, I think I, I feel like I need to be needed. And we had hired enough people that there were art directors and copywriters and account service and 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 production managers and all of the people that there was nothing left for me to do. I basically hired myself out of out of a job, and so as much as I enjoyed it, I felt like I wasn't needed anymore, you know, I'd sort of served my purpose. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't too much of a transition, just taking something that I'd always done as a hobby and just starting to ramp up finding clients and getting paid for it. So it seemed like a very natural progression. One little aside, if it's of interest, Um, when I got that, you know, I sold my company and I got a, a bit of a lump sum and then I got a couple of years worth of payments so that it was it was not just one big giant chunk, um, but what I found was I would always wanted to be a pilot. My uncle, when we moved to Canada, took us flying around the Rocky Mountains in his private plane when I was a little kid, and I got the bug. And you know, 35 years later, I had the time and the money, and I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to get my pilot's license, this is the time. And so, um, in 2005, I did my training and I got my pilot's license and quickly realized that renting uh, a plane is a very expensive proposition and you can burn through a lot of money really fast. And so I thought, well, what if there's a way that I can get someone else to pay for me to fly? I didn't really want to go work for the police department. I didn't want to join the Air Force and I didn't want to, you know, become an airline pilot. So I'm like, what else can I do? And I thought, well, what if I take that photography that I've been doing all these years and just start taking aerial photography. So I started to take pictures from an airplane, which um, from 2006 to 2008 was actually very lucrative. Um, You remember the economy was climbing and building was happening all over the place and everybody was going bonkers. And so for a couple of years there, I had a really good aerial photography business going and then the crash happened and all construction across the country stopped. In fact, probably around the world. And so in the fall of 2008, all of my clients just said, you know, don't bother flying this month. There's nothing happening. And that went on for about two and a half years. Yep. So that was when the business transferred to more uh, traditional commercial photography. Cause I wanted to, I'd bought all this gear, I had all this investment in it. So I started doing the architecture and the people and the other things because construction was just not happening.
1: There's a, there's a fear of like, becoming an entrepreneur and starting your own business. I mean, you know that. And it, it seems like to you though, just the way you're speaking and the way, I'm, what I'm getting from you is that you have done several things on your own without hesitation almost. What, where do you feel like that comes from? Like that, that lack of fear. Yeah. Hmm.
2: Well, I can think watching my dad run his own business and my entire life, I, I never really saw him worry. I know now looking back, there were, hard times and there were money troubles and it was a struggle, but it always seemed to work itself out. And I think, I think the thing when it, what dawned on me was during the economic crash we were just talking about. A lot of my friends had said to me things like, aren't you scared to to go out on your own? Because there's no guarantees, right? Here I've got a full-time job. I've got a 401k. I've got paid time off. You go out there and you're on your own and you just have to go find your clients and you know. And when the downturn happened and all those people with safe, I'm doing air quotes here, safe, secure jobs were suddenly laid off and there—and yet I, all I had to do was work a bit harder, a lot harder and make ends meet, but I still had control over my destiny. And I think that, that that's kind of the, the the short version of it is I'm a control freak. And if someone else is telling me where to be and what time to show up and what to wear, and it's someone else's control. So I'd rather be in control of my own small little kingdom than be at someone else's mercy with a a big budget because that security can evaporate very fast.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I don't know who said this, what quote this was, but I've heard someone say, you can get fired doing something you hate or you can fail at doing something you love. Something, some mm-hmm. it may have been Jim Carrey, <laughs> yeah. someone you know, someone like that. But it was—it actually hit hard with me because it was like yeah. what you just said about the um, about the crash. It's like just because you have a, a nine to five, doesn't mean you're safe from yeah. the economic. I
2: think you know, it's instability it's of, an illusion of security. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a um, I think it's a false sense of safety with that that safe job with the paid time off and stuff because oh, that's you're at the mercy of someone else's whims. And if business dictates it or you piss off the wrong person, you can find yourself completely at sea. And now you don't have you know, if I lose a client or someone, you know, someone doesn't come back this year that we've used we've had every year, we've got lots of other clients. We have a lot of baskets with eggs in them. We are safe if one breaks, you know what I mean? And so yeah, there's a another quote I like is I'd much rather work sixteen hours a day for myself than eight hours a day for someone else. You know. It's like paying rent versus owning a house. Right. You're investing in yourself.
0: So it sounds like the this economic crash was like probably one of the bigger challenges of Macbeth's history. And it sounds like maybe it was an opportunity for you to maybe use it as fuel to try a different area of photography. And I know when I think of yep. Macbeth, I think of your headshots is like your niche almost. And it yeah. sounds like aerial photography used to be your niche. Could you maybe speak about
2: how? It absolutely was. You you you've nailed it. Um, it's It happened that a friend of mine who had a video company, Mark Collins, who owned Odyssey Creative, had expanded his office recently, and he had a studio. And when times got tough, he said, look, I need someone to come and help move in help pay the rent help use the studio which is currently sitting idle a lot of the time and it was just the time when i needed to change gears because the aerial and architectural had fallen off and so that gave me this opportunity suddenly i had i paid him rent and i had a studio and i had gear and i had to learn how to use it so that's when i started that i think you may have heard of first friday photos that i did maybe not Mm -hmm. First Friday Photos was a challenge I set to myself. And I said, the first Friday of every month, we're opening the doors to the studio and anybody can come in and for 20 bucks, they can get a headshot.
1: I do do remember seeing that, yeah.
2: And I did that for four years. So that was 48, basically free sessions. I mean, 20 bucks barely paid for the beer and the food that we would provide for the party, you know, so. um, But what it did was it forced me to get comfortable with Any random person walks through that door, old, young, big, small, black, white. I I didn't know who was gonna be coming in the door next, and I had to, in a very short time, make them comfortable, make them look good, make them feel beautiful, whatever it was. And so it was essentially the baptism by fire, you know? You just throw yourself in the deep end and see what happens. And um, it also had the, it, it it was really a way for me to practice photographing people but it had the unintended consequence of generating an enormous amount of buzz for Macbeth because people started to expect it and they would say things like what's the theme for next month you know because we changed the background and everything so it wasn't just the same every month and um pretty soon we had regulars that would come and they'd be like hey what what color is it going to be I want to coordinate my outfit and and it was really turned into quite the party and um it also generated some really good long-term business
0: that word of mouth marketing that created its own
2: and it was weird because i would people would say to me you know you're giving away your photography practically why are you doing this and these the people that came are the people who probably wouldn't pay a hundred bucks for a headshot but what happened was we would get things like a i don't know some 22 year old paralegal would come in with her girlfriend and they'd have fun, and they'd get some great photos, and I'd send them to them. And then, you know, six months later, I'd get a phone call from a law firm, and they'd say, hey, a girl that works for us got her headshot with you a while back. We need headshots for the whole company. And I'd be like, sure, here's my rate. And they'd be like, great. And there's 22 headshots at regular rates, all because of that one lost leader six months ago. So it's, you know, it's not a get rich quick, but it's a, it's kind of a long game, but it, really generated some buzz and people still talk about it. We get an email every once in a while. Hey, do you still do that Friday thing?
1: Was that the, I wonder, was that the intention of that? Or was that, it was, it was a side, Nope. something that happened because of it. it. That yeah.
2: was an, that was a complete byproduct. I wasn't thinking of it as a business uh, development tool. I was thinking of it as a practice for me to get better mm-hmm. at my craft so that I'd be good when the customers started coming.
0: Yeah, cause like reverse engineering that, that's like the, Ideal word of mouth marketing campaign, right. Would be like to do I something wish I'd <laughs> free or cheap that encourages people to come yeah. in, especially today. Like, like if I came to your studio, I'd probably do an Instagram story while I'm sitting there, right? Tag Mcbeth Studio, right? And it's like there, I, there I am sharing you on social you and tagging your brand, which I wouldn't do normally.
2: And we had we had a couple of people that worked for us at the time who um, who were super creative and made these enor- enormously ornate backdrops, um, really complicated and fun which were attractive to people to come and it this was sort of almost before the instagram Hmm. studio was a thing you know the um joshua and jeanette johnson have that
1: um, the wall crawl
2: over there in paramore what they're doing now was kind of like what we were doing on a much smaller scale but we didn't think of it that way it just turned out you know people weren't using their phones to take their pictures but we were taking their pictures in front of really Cool, fun backgrounds, and then sending them to them, which they would then use for their social media stuff. So it it had the effect of being a great marketing tool, but it was purely accidental. I can't take credit for thinking right. of it.
0: So just just touching real quick, like you said, you learned so much about like talking to these strangers and like, oh, and like yeah. making them comfortable, making them feel beautiful. Could you just touch on maybe like yeah bullet points of like what you learned or like some tips that we could take away?
2: Even like. well, if if there's any if any of your listeners out there are Are aspiring portrait photographers. I will say this, um, the technical side of portrait photography is a weekend's worth of training. You can learn lighting, exposure, um, quality and quantity and, and color of light and all that sort of thing in a few YouTube videos. The thing they don't tell you is that working with human beings is probably the most challenging and demanding um, type of photography. I'm, you know, I, I don't do wedding photography, but I take my hat off to them all because they, that, is, that is a very hard job. Wedding photography is like portrait plus event plus journalism plus everything else rolled into one. What I found is you, you have to have a, a toolkit of, of ways to recognize someone's insecurities or they're uh they're they've got their walls up or they've they're just they're just um, either shy or embarrassed or insecure or afraid or um you have to be able to take charge of the situation and you have to make the person feel comfortable and attractive and relaxed and if possible get them out of the studio in their mind what i mean by that is i'll talk to them about their kids or their favorite weekend pastime fishing or football or golf or uh, whatever it is, because whatever your brain is thinking, your face reflects it. And if all you're thinking about is these weird lights and this stark studio and this white paper backdrop, your face reflects that sort of nervousness and fear and apprehension. But if I can get you in your head thinking about your kids or your grandkids or your, or your girlfriend or your um, favorite sport or your team, if your brain says, Oh, we're in comfortable territory now, and your face relaxes and you smile like a genuine smile and you don't have those kind of like scared eyes and stuff. And so the human interaction part has taken a decade to get really comfortable with. Um, so the you gotta master the, the technology, right? You gotta know your camera and you've gotta know your lights and your gear, and then you gotta forget all that and um, You have to dedicate your time to making the person feel good and feel comfortable and feel like they're in a safe place. And then they'll give you that beautiful expression. And then when they see it, they're like, oh, my God, nobody's ever got a picture like that before. It's not about the light and the camera. It's a human connection job, not
1: a technical job. Yeah,
2: Yeah, and I'm lucky that I happen to be kind of like non-threatening and unassuming and, you know, people, obviously nobody's scared of me. And so they come in and I think people... People will say weird things, which is such a huge compliment. I'll, I'll do a session with somebody and they're like, man, you're a great photographer. And I'll be like, yeah, but you haven't even seen a picture yet. How do you know? <laughs> I might I might have screwed it all up. But I think what they're saying there is that you've made the experience good, which to me is 80% of the job. The rest is just getting a decent exposed photo, right? In focus and lit properly, which isn't really hard.
0: Yeah, I think if we were translating kind of what you're talking about, but like to how we like to do interviews, an ideal world would be like, you're talking to them outside of the set, you're talking to them as you're walking into the set, you're still talking to them while they're sitting down, you never stop talking to them, and the cameras are starting to speed, nobody's, nobody's like interrupting it to be like, are we recording? You know, it's like, you can can distract them and never let them like take in this world, or you just give them a small thing to do while they're doing, you know, while they're taking the photo, like, Think yep. you know, like.
2: Yeah, I learned a ton of little tricks along the way. Like if you put a table in front of the person for them to lean on, immediately they feel safe. It's almost like a barrier between you and them. And they're not just standing in the middle of a set, That's kind really of exposed. Yeah. Hmm. Give me something to lean on, and I feel, oh, okay. Now I'm and like it's at the bar. Like
0: that table, like eating mentality too. Like eating the or or
2: sitting, sitting at the bar of. with your friends. As soon as you rest your arm on something like this, your brain says, oh, we're in a relaxed environment now. Well, because good thing we have this table. Like <laughs> good Thank goodness for that. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you mentioned wedding photography, so I do a lot of wedding video videography, and like you can, I, I've seen moments where I've shot with certain brides, and it's been mm-hmm. so obvious which ones just by their facial expression, which ones are comfortable with you having a camera in their face, and which ones are not comfortable with you having cameras in their face, right. and that sometimes comes down to me like making them feel comfortable. But yep. I feel like that it's one of those skills, like you were saying that. It's not something that you can learn on YouTube, you know, it's, it's something that you just have to do every day. You have to
2: do it and you have to see what, try out a lot of things, right? You say a lot of dumb stuff until you find the things that work. And um, whenever I watch, I watch a lot of videos of other portrait photographers and I'm always watching to see what they're saying to their customers. I'm watching for those little um, sh- little nuggets that make someone snicker or giggle or or just you see the shoulders drop when they're like, okay, this is going to be fun this is not going to be a an ordeal you know um yeah you know, there's tons of little little things i i do between i don't know 10 and 20 portraits a week here in the studio and people come in and sometimes they've had a hard time trying to find a place to park or they've dealt with i4 traffic or they've had a fight with their spouse this morning or they forgot the appointment and then they're late and their hair's messed up or whatever Whatever happens before they get to me, I can't control that. But once they walk through the door, and I mean, regularly people say, "Just so you know, I hate getting my picture taken," but my boss said I had to do this. So here we are. Right. We're starting off, <laughs> starting off on the right foot. You know, I feel like a dentist sometimes. Yeah. Like, just so you know, I hate talking to the dentist. So go ahead, doc. And and I feel like okay. You, what you hate is the previous experiences you've had with photographers or you've hated what they've done or said or made you look like. That doesn't mean you hate me. You just, you've had prior bad experiences, but this one's going to be different. And I don't say all that, but I think that. So immediately I'm like, well, you know, let's make this the best experience you've ever had. And as soon as you show that you're not going to make them look stupid or make them feel dumb they you see people just go oh okay this is different and they keep it short first of all you don't drag it out you know I most portrait sessions here are 10 minutes or less and that's not because I want to just rush them out the door um, and get more people it's because you can only keep up that smile and stuff for so long right attention span but also fatigue mm. just it gets tiring so you've got to catch those early photos are usually the ones that are the best, you know, the first few shots. And um, so yeah, I keep it short, I keep it sweet. I keep, I try to keep them talking about other stuff other than being here, which means their mind is outside the studio, which means their face looks like they are when they're on vacation and not when they're, you know, having a camera pointed yeah, out. Like
0: them. nurses do when you're getting a shot. Yeah, you know, they're like, yeah. right before they do it, they ask you some random question, you
2: know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a diversion, for a second. So you, you're not thinking about what's actually happening. And, um, yeah.
0: So like in those 10 minutes, how do you know you got the shot? Like, I guess we're going into like maybe a little bit of a theory conversation, but like,
2: no, that's okay.
0: Like um, how do you know when to, to take the picture or are you a continuous shutter bug or,
2: you know, I, the longer I've been doing this, the fewer shots I take in a session, I used to do like 200 to be safe because I wasn't sure but now I can start to feel when, when we've got the shot. Um, I like to give every customer a variety of smiling, non-smiling, pointing in both directions. Um, I pose them a, a couple of different ways. I like people to have a variety, but it's probably 50 photos, tops in a 10-minute session. And the first three or four are just getting to know the person. I don't, I don't like to get the camera up in front of my face Before, I've developed a little bit of a rapport with people. Um, So I'll often be holding it and just leave it at my side and talk to them. So I like to have it because that way it doesn't suddenly appear and they get scared of it. But I like it to be kind of around but not in between us yet. And then we just have a conversation. Where are you from? What's what's the job? What are you using this photo for? I get people coming in saying, "Um, I just wrote a book and I need a photo for the dust jacket. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun. You know, what... Tell me about the book, you know, tell me what kind of a vibe you want to have. And once they hear that I'm interested in what their final result is supposed to be, they, I believe, start to feel like, okay, he cares. He's listening instead of just going, all right, let's just do what we always do. Like in Sears where they just tell you do this pose, this pose, this pose, this pose, and now get out. And we haven't even had a conversation Yep, exactly.
1: It's really cool that that you get to meet and hear all these stories too, right? I mean, yeah. I, I bet it's pretty awesome that all of these people from Orlando, maybe even prominent figures that we that we know of, that yeah. come in and get to tell you their little ten minute spiel of their day or what they're doing. Or
2: and I think the best thing is, I love learning about people. I'm uh, I'm really interested in hearing people's stories. Genuinely, I'm not just doing it because I think it'll make them have a good photo. I really do kind of like getting to know people. And, um, I think just asking probing questions means that, you know, the, the thing they say, the thing most people like to talk about them is themselves, right? Yeah. You know, and if you want to be thought of as a really good, like a good conversationalist, just ask lots of questions like you guys are doing to me today. But, um, so I just keep firing questions at them all the time. And, you know, if they, leave here and i know all about them and they don't know a thing about me that's totally fine you know um and also i think that if i start the question with what's the purpose of these photos we're doing today what are you going to do with them it immediately helps them get into the mindset of envisioning that finished photo whether it's a dust jacket of a of a book or a brochure for their sales or their business card if they're a realtor or a uh, attorney or um a billboard, like um, there's a couple of guys around town that have billboards up that are my photos. And um, it gets us both in the right mindset. You know, if, if I can make them think about what that finished photo is gonna look like, they're already halfway there to giving me the expression and the pose that that I need. But also it helps me with like, is this something serious? We don't want a lot of cheesy smiley grins because this is about, you know, serious business. I'm, a, I'm an attorney and I want you to come to me with your trust and your money, <laughs> and so let's not make it look like a used car salesman on the billboard. You I mean, need to you look. guide them
1: that way, right? So if they yeah. come in and you know what the purpose is, you can help them.
2: Yeah, I listen to point. what they say they want, and then I try to help give them what I think they really want. Which is oftentimes it's we're in sync, but sometimes I'm like, you know, a woman will come in and she'll be like, "I hate this side. I only want to be shot from this side," and I'm like, "Well, I wonder why that is." And Sometimes it's obvious, you know, but a lot of times it's just like they've gotten in their head that they only have one good side and they won't, they don't ever want to be. And I'm like, tell you what, I'm just going to take a few with you facing the other way. I think you might like them, but they're, you know, you can always hit delete if you don't. You, no one else is going to see these. And about, you know, half the time, I'll get a pleasantly surprised sort of email saying, you know what, I didn't think I liked that site, but it looks great. And it's nothing I've done. It's just that I try try to get people a little bit out of their comfort zone because we're only talking about pixels and digits. We're not talking, you know, huge expense or anything, so. You
0: made them love a new half of themselves. Right,
2: right. (laughs) You're twice the person you thought you were. (laughs) Honestly, there are, you know, I go through most days where, you know, you take their picture, they see thanks, they pay their bill and they leave and I don't hear another thing from them. But every once in a while, there's some really kind of touching moments. we had a woman come in one day um, and she had this great little pixie haircut and she was dynamic and vivacious and just just a ball of energy and so much fun to photograph and we took a bunch of pictures of her and um, just as we were getting ready to go, I showed her on the back of the camera, just a little dinky little LED, LCD shot and I said, by the way, here's what you look like and she started crying and I'm like, oh my God, what's wrong and she goes, she said, I just spent last year in chemo and I lost all my hair. And this is the first picture I've seen of myself with my, with hair. And it had grown out about two inches. So she was really small. But she said, these are amazing. I didn't know I looked like this. I was like, oh my God. So um, we get, you know, all manner of things. And you know, when uh, we had a group come in, a grandma and their kids and their kids, so three generations, and we photographed them here. and." Six months later, I got a call and said, you know, Grandma passed. Can you pull out some of those pictures and send them to us? Because we're going to have... It's like, you know, you you become a part of people's stories sometimes. So.
1: What's the most satisfying part of, of your job? I mean, I think you may have just touched on it a bit, but is it that? Is it showing people, making them happy to look at themselves?
2: Yeah. Uh, I think the most satisfying part of doing a really good job of portrait photography is you you sometimes can show someone, like we said, a side of themselves they haven't seen, right? If, if the only photos they ever see of themselves are selfies in a badly lit hallway, you know, where they've got raccoon eyes because of the downward light or, you know, uh, whatever, people often, I've found, don't really know what they look like until they get a well-lit, well-posed, um, you know, complete photo of themselves. I did a project a while back called The Portrait Project. The Portrait Project evolved out of years of doing headshots. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way, that, the way that evolved was, every so often, uh, it, a, a woman, and it was always a woman, would look at the pictures I had just taken of her and say, it's a nice picture, but it, it doesn't look like me. You know, it looks like my mom or my sister or my aunt or something. And i am um, be like, no, 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 it looks like you. This is what you look like. And not everybody, of course. And um, it, it was regularly happening enough that I really got to thinking about why do some people think they don't look like what they actually look like? and um, And it's pretty relevant to doing a podcast because... As those of you out there who've ever heard your own voice recorded and then played back to you, to you, it sounds terrible, it sounds so weird. But to everyone else, it's like, yep, that's what you sound like. And you're like, oh my God, I sound like that? I sound awful. Well, what if there's a visual equivalent of that? And that's what I sort of began to think, is what if, just like radio broadcasters who know what their own voice sounds like, they're not shocked when they hear it. And so people who get pictures taken of themselves a lot, models, and actors and whatever else they know their sides they know what they look like and they are not surprised when they see a picture but people who don't get photographed very often some of them seem to have a different mental picture in their head of what their face looks like than what the rest of us see so I got to think about why would that be and um my theory was that they see themselves up close in a mirror so it's it's very close because they're doing the makeup or whatever and it's flipped so there's two factors distance and reversed image right so to test this out i photographed 94 women over the course of six months and i set this flattering light and i had them wear um, tube tops or something so there was no clothing or jewelry to get in the way and i photographed them from very close like uncomfortably close like a foot from their face And then I backed up to about four or five feet away with a longer lens and took a second photo. Everything else was the same. And I had them not smiling because I didn't want the expression to change in two photos. So I was trying to be remove all other variables except for distance. Then I flipped the first photo, the close one, and I put them side by side. So I had a close flopped photo side by side with a more distant, more social distance like this, um, not flipped. And then I had this gallery show, and we put them all up on the walls, and we invited all the participants to come back. And it was it was like magic watching this happen. So the woman and her husband say, come up and look at these two pictures. And I'd say to them, which one, to the woman, I'd say, which one do you think looks more like you? And she'd say, invariably, the one on the left, the flipped close one. And the husband would like, what are you, crazy? You look like the one on the right, not flipped, and from a little bit of a distance. Wow. And what I think is happening is, you know, as you get closer to something, perspective changes, right? If you look at a soccer ball from six inches in front of your face, you can only see a few panels, but if you hold it back further, you can see more around it because your angle is changing. Well, your face is the same way, right? If you look up close, your ears seem to be way far back and your nose seems longer and your forehead seems bigger. And as you get back, it flattens perspective out. Mm -hmm. So, My theory, which seemed to be proven, was the women see themselves up close, and that's the only time they're really studying their own face, whereas their significant others, their family members, see them at a more social distance more of the time, and of course, not reversed. (laughs) And so those two factors mean that when a person who doesn't get their picture taken very often sees a crisp, large image of themselves, they're like, something's wrong with this. This isn't what I look like.
0: Yeah, I think that's something I think about the mirror effect. You don't even realize it's like that's that's what you think you look like, but it's actually flipped. Like that,
2: yeah. Your freckle that you're
0: like, oh yeah, that's on this side of my face. It's actually yeah. the opposite. That's right what sh-
1: everything about your face is the opposite. The yeah. View. I think the 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 length away makes sense to me. The flip thing is crazy, and that's that's so interesting that you can look different just by flipping the.
2: Yeah, and by I didn't just. I mean, I could have easily just taken pictures of people and then done left and right. Right. But the distance, when you start to study the image, it really changes the shape of your face. That just a couple of feet makes a big difference in the perspective. Yeah, and
0: that, that focal length
1: mm-hmm. that people always yep. share
2: where
0: it's
1: like the 16 to the, yep. you know, 200 <laughs> yeah. units. We ran a full-on scientific yep. method experiment. I there. did. <laughs> Hypothesis. I, <and> I did.
2: <laughs> See, I'm, I'm, I'm like left and right brain, and I that's why I, I like digital photography, and that's why I like, um, you know, anything where I can, architecture is another place where there's, Creativity and very technical. And the I'm I'm kind of at the crossroads of those two. So this to me was like art meets science. Yeah, I love that. and the tagline was maybe you don't look like what you think you look like. That's so cool. And it made people go, What? Makes me wonder. <laughs> <laughs> right. I got a bunch of guys saying, When are you gonna take pictures of men? <laughs> I was like, But well, doesn't it doesn't seem to happen so often because I don't think we study ourselves quite so much in such detail for such a critical length of time you know what i mean as someone putting on makeup you're almost like that no one can stand up to that level of scrutiny you know i mean that's the
0: mantra of a photographer it's like i'm showing a part of you that maybe you're not seeing or hopefully every photo is like capturing the essence of a
2: person that's the goal that's we see. that's what we try to do yeah but that experiment resulted from this really peculiar observation that happened and it took years for me to sort of put together this, why doesn't she know what she looks like? This just makes no sense. You look at yourself every day. You must know. But then right. I thought, well, that's the problem is that you're, you're looking at a view of yourself that only you see.
0: I kind of want to touch on just briefly, like your fascination with stories. And I looked at your website, um, th- mm. this morning and it says, let us tell your story. And like, just from opening it, you know, like, I'm, I'm going to be devil's advocate real quick. Um, Do it. just like, you say you don't do weddings, you don't do babies, you don't do like these things that are traditionally like a moment, a story, you know, and you, you guys do headshots, you guys do architecture, you guys do lifestyle. If I were saying like, oh, it seems like they're avoiding stories, you know, like what would you say to something
2: like that? Even if I get 10 minutes with someone in a single outfit in with a single background and lighting package, I think I'm telling a tiny part of your story. I think that I'm telling, um, It's it's a... A moment in time, right? You might go get your hair cut or colored tomorrow, and you'd be a different person. But we that little that little session, that ten minute session, was a was a moment in your story, you know. And I think that if I do the best job I can, and I make you feel better about yourself when you leave than when you got here, then we we you know we did our job, and we told at least a chapter or a sentence, a paragraph, let's say, of your story, and um you know, telling stories also, I don't know if you want to get into this, but the Legacy Life Project is is the passion project that's probably the next decade's worth of work. Um, yeah, I was thinking,
0: I have a question about that, oh, so I'd love, love to hear, maybe, that's like the manifestation of, let us tell your story, it let is. us tell your loved one's stories. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're both videographers, and I know Christian almost uses that same
1: Um, thing with his wedding
0: videos where it's like never forget your perfect day you know
1: like something you can have for the rest of your life and not just for yourself but for your kids and your grandkids like right I think it's so interesting to we didn't get the opportunity to see that stuff as kids like I didn't get to watch my my mom and dad's wedding video other than the fact that it was like this really janky terrible like old school wedding video that I wouldn't want to watch anyways but like to think of and, and this obviously goes back to you in the in the Legacy Project, it's like, oh man, how cool is it that you can share this forever? These are things that you can share with people forever. Right. So do you want to introduce the Life Legacy Project?
2: I'd love to, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll give you a little background. Um, I told you my dad was a freelance cartoonist and we didn't have the best relationship, you know, we weren't really that close, me and my dad, but um, you know, I'd go home and see him for the holidays and we'd, you know, we'd get along okay, we just weren't really tight. And then um, it's like Thanksgiving of two years ago, my mom called and said, he's had a, your dad's had a seizure or something. And so we went to the hospital and it turns out he had a um, inoperable brain tumor like uh, John McCain had that uh, glioblastoma, I think it's called. And it's fast, it's aggressive. It's pretty much inoperable because once you start taking out brain parts, you don't know what the person's gonna be like anymore. So yeah. we knew we had a few months left with him and he, he was better but he was never himself again. It affected his um, everything from motor skills to memory to the whole deal, right? And then we lost him in the spring of uh, 2017. And I realized I didn't have a video of him telling me his stories. I didn't have a video of him telling me about World War II in London with the bombs falling and going into the air raid shelters. And I didn't have all of this cool information died with him. Right. And so my brother has some, has kids and you know, when they get old enough to ask questions, you know, we have kind of, we think we know, but we don't have any documentation of it. And I had all these regrets and I was kicking myself for why I've got all this gear. Why didn't I ever just go and make the, make the damn movie, you know? And, um, what I realized occurred to me is that it's very hard to interview your own parents. And it's not just because, um, you know, you're you're close with them. I think that a parent won't tell a story to an offspring the way they would tell to their buddy, their fishing buddy, or their bartender, or their hairdresser, or, or whatever. You know what I mean? It's, withhold
1: some things, maybe. Yeah.
2: Withhold it. And also, we, when we're talking to people we've lived with our whole lives, we tend to use shorthand, right? We say, skip over details that... Exactly, do. right? You say things like, oh, that time we went to Myrtle Beach and, you know and no other details. And, and everybody knows what that story was because they were all there. But when an int- interested interviewer shows up and says, all right, your son or daughter has told me these are the kinds of things we want to talk about. So, and we go into it. They tell you the story with all the detail, right? They may be embellishing, and that's okay because it's part of the story. But the the point is that you tell an interviewer a much more complete story than you tell to a close family member. So I kind of gave myself a little bit of a break in that there's, you know, there's all that relationship stuff going on. I can interview a stranger much easier than I can interview my own family members. And so I thought, well, what if we could provide a service for people so that they don't go and have the same regrets that I do about a relative who's passed and they don't have the story, um, captured anywhere so we're essentially saying tell us what you want to know tell us the things you think you know and let us go get the complete story for you we'll capture it we'll edit it we'll put it on a put it out there in the cloud and it'll be there forever and you can you know get it whenever you want it and um, so the legacy life project was kind of born out of my own frustration with myself and the results have been you know kind of mind-blowing the the people who have heard stories that they had no idea from their ver- their own parents or grandparents. Every time we've done this, someone says to us, wow, he's never told me that story. It's like, cool, hmm. you know? And this again goes back to that, I'm non-threatening, I'm curious about people. So this is kind of like, I was meant to do this, you know, I was built for this kind of thing. And plus it's so much fun. Everyone has a story, that's the thing. You don't have to have invented some crazy thing or cured cancer or um, fought in the military or, you know, just an ordinary life when you start to dig into it is extraordinary and, and fascinating. And, um, you know, I th- a lot of what I struggle with is people are planning their wedding. Young ladies are planning their weddings almost from the time they can walk, right? They know that they're going to get have this. Movie. So filming a wedding is is easy. It's, it's, it's uh, that's not what I mean. Hiring a hiring a videographer is a is a is not a difficult decision is where I'm trying to go with that. Yeah. What we're trying to do we're we're sort of in I guess inventing a a genre here, this sort of personal biography thing, and people don't have it in their mind that they're going to document their elderly loved ones' stories. And so it's very much an uphill kind of sell as opposed to Filming your wedding day is a is a almost like that box needs to be checked first. Yeah. yeah, and I meet, you know, I meet dozens of people a week for a very short period of time, but it's great when we could spend two or three hours really going all the way back. What's your earliest memory? And the, the crazy thing about this project I've discovered is if I'm sitting with a 90-year-old and I start out by saying, Okay, back when you were a child, tell me about your grandparents. So now you're talking the person who hired us and their parents, and then I'm talking to her grandparents. And now we're talking to that person's grandparents or remembering them. So this is like a time capsule taking us back to, you know, the late 1800s when those people were born and the stories that they told. So we're really looking back into a family's history. And um, so it, it just becomes this like when, when, when we're done with this film, the person who hired us now has this family record in their own words with their accent, with their idiosyncrasies, with their lingo that they use that that you know tells so much more than just a photo album. You know what I mean? It's like, it's rich. It's, it becomes like an heirloom.
0: Yeah. A family heirloom almost. Sort of it does. It
2: does. They should
0: belong to. You know? And
2: so. kids that aren't born yet, you know, think about their opportunity to look back into, into the past and find out where they come from. You know, what's your place mm-hmm. in the world and who are the people that came before you so
1: how did you start getting people to know that this was something you were offering
2: well that's still an ongoing challenge Mm -hmm. we are we're we're starting to make inroads we've um we've been reaching out to um one one place we started thinking about was um you know people who do uh financial planning Mm -hmm. retirement planning long-term care Mm -hmm. life insurance they're already in the process of having that conversation with about things difficult stuff in life like What's the world going to be like when you're not in it anymore? And what are you going to do for your heirs and descendants and dependents and things like that? So we've been partnering with a couple of those to say, hey, while you're having this conversation about all this, you know, awful stuff, why don't you throw a sweetener in there and say, you know, how about we capture your story for those future generations? And you can pass along a message, just like a message in a bottle, right? You can say to whatever you want to tell, your descendants. And so, um, that's one way we've been advertising on WMFE, which is, a, uh, you know, our local NPR station, which seems to be getting some traction. Um, and then, you know, social media friends hear about it and, you know, everyone's got someone they care about. So, you know, pretty much everybody is a potential customer. It's just, you know, it's cost and it's time and it's getting them in the mindset of, you don't realize how much you will want this once it's too late and that's the problem with this business is you know by the time you realize it often it's i can't i can't help you anymore so we're we're very much trying to educate people on this you know almost like trust me you'll be glad you did it
0: what brought you to orlando originally or because you mentioned canada you mentioned England? yeah i don't really know your uh, (laughs) geography background but
2: like i'm all over yeah uh moved to From England to Canada my dad wanted to be a cartoonist we would try to move directly to the states but even in the 70s there was a lot of um, obstacles to just moving right in here so we went to Canada and then we moved to Florida and applied from the inside we we applied for our green cards first um, got had a law firm helping so we got our green cards and then uh, in 2000 I became a citizen so basically just you know followed the process it took a long time but we did it so moved to the coast of Florida, um, just north of Tampa, and that's where I went to high school. That's where I took that track picture that got me into photography in the first place. And um, then I came to UCF, and that's what brought me to Orlando, and I've been here ever since. You know, once, once I graduated from UCF and my partner and I started that uh, ad agency, we were pretty much embedded here
1: has seen a lot of change since since then. Orlando's really grown since then, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, 88 is when I moved here. And yeah, it's it's, it's really changed, yeah.
1: So, so what do you lo-
0: like about or love about Orlando that has kept you here?
2: The thing that attracts me to it and still does is that anyone can make a difference here. You don't have to be wealthy or on the inside, um, you know, in the in crowd. You you can move to this town and in a year be well connected and plugged into everything that's going on. Um, and I think that's Orlando's great strength right now is that it's it's such a welcoming and inclusive place. It's not clicky, it's, hey, if you've got an idea and the willingness to put the work in, come on in, we'll take it. We need people who are gonna make Orlando what it's going to be in 100 years from now. And so it's kind of exciting to be on that, one of the people who, generations from now we'll establish something that might be continuing and so the thing that excites me about Orlando is the ability to make meaningful change and you know instead of just complaining about things like they do in a lot of cities we can say well I don't like this I'm gonna I'm gonna fix it you know as I said earlier we're friends with Kay Rollins who's one of the founders of Orlando City she and her husband just came into town and said this town needs a soccer team let's do it and you know, it took money and it took effort and it took a lot of community um, cohesion to make that happen. But, you know, bringing a internationally recognized sports franchise up from nothing is something you can do in this town. And what
1: a startup that was. I feel yeah. like ever since that happened, there's been this like explosion of like community just, yep. just from that soccer team being built. And both. a lot
2: of it is right place, right time. You know, Orlando is right for new stuff. You know, I think this is a lot of cities around the country are on their—they've at least plateaued if they're not declining—and Orlando is kind of like this. It's this golden child right now, and the, we're in—we're in the middle of it, and we're plugged in and connected. And that's what's exciting to me about this city is that, you know, you—I could talk to my city commissioner. She, I see her, Patty Sheehan out all the time, and we're—we're we're buds. You know, I—in another city that would be so far out of my of my bubble i would i would never probably even be in the same room as that person so
1: and how how much does it help and maybe who has helped you throughout all of your trials and 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 things like that like how important is it to have people who have the same vision as you or can help you
2: oh yeah none of this could happen by myself i i don't have the time or the energy or the connections or anything to make it happen but I gotta say, I mean, I have to say this—it's absolutely true. My wife is the number one cheerleader. Every time I come back with some harebrained idea, she's like, "You should do that. You should do that right now." So, Beth gets all the credit for that. And then, um, you know, it's—it's it's everybody from our the mayor and our commissioner who have been incredible supporters of all of our uh, all of our ideas. To, I mean, staff here at Macbeth—they throw in extra hours just to make things happen. To um, our friends at the DOP, Downtown Orlando Partnership, have been amazing supporters of everything we we try, whether it's just a happy hour at our office or a big involved fundraiser. And, you know, just, just our friends.
1: When you're hiring employees or you're looking for someone that you, I guess, can trust or mm-hmm. is worth paying the money for, what, what kind of qualities do you look for? Or what
2: We used to hire for skills, Not anymore i hire for people that fit i hire for people i like i mean i'm around them more than anybody else right it's eight hours a day every day so a they got to get along with me and my weird quirkiness but (laughs) they've also got to have some things that i don't have right i don't want a bunch of clones of me i want people who challenge me and who are good at things i'm not good at and you know and yeah hire for the stuff you cannot teach
0: how has this work transformed you oh that's a good question from like when you started Macbeth to now like how are you different
2: I've used this expression before to 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 my employees to former employees is instead of thinking of Macbeth studio as a end uh end product a a a photography factory or something in my mind I think of this as an incubator what I'm thinking about this place is a it's a it's a place to for ideas to be born and get a little bit established and if they have any value or any any kind of staying power then they'll go off and fly off on their own. Local of Orlando is one of those. The Legacy Life Project is one of those. It's taking the equipment and the talent and the skill of our people and using what we've got to to incubate, give it a give it a chance to fly a, with this sort of safety net around it and the and the network of friends and and customers and vendors and clients that we have here and introducing a new idea to them and you know we get to test stuff it's like having a test kitchen where you're you've got all the gear and all the stoves and pots and pans and you can create new things and try them out on your customers and see if they work so to me this is a lab an idea lab more than it is just a photography studio.
0: what makes you get out of bed in the morning and do this work
2: the number one thing is I really love what I do. And I'm, I'm not just saying that. I really, you know, making, I sometimes have to sort of pinch myself. I'm I'm making money with a camera every day. I'm, I'm making a living. Which so many people work their nine to five jobs and then when they get off work, they go photograph things. They take pictures of sunsets or rocket launches or, you know, I've got a bunch of very talented friends who don't make their living at photography because they haven't found a way to, you know, Be a business person as well um and then also i'm surrounded by cool people and i get to meet crazy cool folks every day someone will walk in here for a headshot and the next thing you know i'm like taking their card and calling them let's go to lunch i want to talk some more because it's you know some folks are just like the the attorney who has to get a shot for his company and some people are like i i invented a thing and i need a picture for my promotion it's like tell me about it you know so i get to i get to cross paths with a lot of really cool folks
1: obviously there is going to be a point i'm assuming where you're probably going to want to retire or not be working as much or maybe not maybe you'll be working forever but is there a can you imagine a time when you'll pass this studio on to somebody else or
2: yeah um exit strategy (laughs) i've I've been i've been told by business coaches and stuff you should have one of those Um, fortunately this this job, although it's a bit, um, it can be exhausting from time to time. It's the kind of job you can do well into your, you know, senior years because it's, you know, camera's not that heavy and it's much more about what's in your head than it is about physical ability, you know? Um, but yeah, you know, the, the goal of having Jamie as the apprentice here and learning everything I can do is that she's getting to the point where if I'm, Can't show up or if I'm out of the country or something this place will just run just fine without me Um, I'm really needed more in the deciding if a job comes in if we should take it or not and Jackie and I are doing a lot of that with the is this right for us is the is the reward versus the effort worth it and that kind of thing so my you know if I disappeared tomorrow these guys could run the place just fine Um, which is kind of the position I got to with the ad agency you know so However, what we've learned over the last 10 years, I think is going to inform the, the next thing, which to me, if I spent my time traveling around the country interviewing old folks and capturing their stories, and then Morgan would edit them or a team of editors if we have too much work, that's where I see the future of what we're doing. Um, we've all agreed that if tomorrow everything else went away and all we did was legacy, that would be fine with all of us. I mean. I, I like doing headshots, but it's so much more rewarding to present that finished video to a, a grandchild of a elderly parent and they watch it and they just, they can't believe what they've got. You know, so, so I think that's, that's where I'm headed. You know, if all I do is sit and talk to people and someone else handles the tech and the lighting and the editing and all that stuff, and I just am the interviewer, that's where I get my, that's the, that's the stuff that feels good for me.
0: Super inspiring. Thank Thanks so much, appreciate Jim, it, for talking uh, to us. It. I don't know how long we've been speaking, but that was, that was a great conversation. So we just want to thank Jim for taking the time and talking to us uh, at his studio. It was great to see his setup there and his team. He um, has a really amazing team that he's built around himself. And I think there's some really awesome things that we could take away and apply it even to our businesses.
1: Personally, for me, what I took away from it most, and at the end there, we were talking a lot about his new project that he wants to start on, called a legacy project and for aqueous films and me and kind of what our brand does it hit really close to home for me because it's just one of those things that i've been thinking about for so long and to hear him talk about wanting to you know maintain these memories of these people uh for their loved ones is like what aqueous films does and like to hear somebody else want to do that and feel like that's important for the world was was really awesome. And Jim has kind of been taking risks and and going out, out on the limb and going for it. I think that's kind of what I took away from this is it's possible to, you know, that idea you have, or that dream you have, or that, that video idea you have, or that business you want to start, if you just work for it and, and you just got to do it. And if you do it, it can end up becoming something really special to you. And it's possible.
0: I think just from hearing him like gush about Orlando, just like reinforces, um, our decision to be here and to continue to be here, um, just from talking to these businesses that have been here for so long. And like, they think this is like a golden time to be in Orlando
1: and talking to Jim and hear, hearing him talk about how supportive the community is, uh, to hear that and for me and Ben to both be young and, uh, both have these kind of young budding businesses. It kind of gives us confidence to know that we're in the right place and that the city is growing and it it's exciting to think that maybe we can grow with it.
0: Yeah, it's a, we're loving the opportunity through this podcast to talk to some of these big brands and like um, get plugged in to like the heartbeat of Orlando. Um, and we're looking forward to doing more episodes in the coming weeks. Hopefully we don't take as long as between these these two episodes. Um, but thanks so much for listening. and.
1: Yeah, thanks guys for for listening and we can't wait to see you on on the next podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review. It really helps us create more content for you.